Hey, this is Taylor Swift, and you're listening to my favorite podcast, the Westchester Church Podcast. I love music. I love how it soothes me. I love how it brings me to a calm and how it makes seemingly everything in the world and all of its worries and anxieties go away, even for just a few moments. And yet what I love most about music, though, is is all of the theology that is richly embedded into it, whether we even know it's there or not. And so we come to the very end and to the last track on our music series called Christian Music That Is Not Christian Music. It's a song called, They Didn't Believe Me. Now, They Didn't Believe Me is a song that is at least thought to have originated about 1914. It's a very, very, very old song. Later on, it became a Broadway staple in the mid-20th century, but a lot of artists throughout all the years have covered it at one, one point or another. And yet the one that I have always enjoyed the very most is by a vocal jazz singer, whose name was Johnny Hartman. I don't know if anybody remembers Johnny Hartman. He's not quite um, as known as all the others were, but what, what set Johnny Hartman apart from all the others was he had a baritone, rumbling voice. It was one of the absolute greatest baritones that we've ever heard in music. And on his very first album in 1956, Johnny Hartman covered They Didn't Believe Me. And it was known for its very simple everyday language, very short, simple song. And when I told them how beautiful you are they didn't believe me no they didn't Believe me, your lips, your eyes, your cheeks, your hair are in a class beyond compare. You're the loveliest girl I've ever seen. Never believe me. They 
So because it comes from that long ago in 1914, what it envisions is a, a soldier on some World War I battlefield who is telling other soldiers about how after all of this, this war business is over, I'm going to go home and marry the most beautiful girl that I have ever seen. And they asked to see a picture of her that arrived in, in a letter she had most recently sent. And they look at it and everybody laughs and, and they do not believe it because, well, look at you and then look at her. You two do not belong together at all. And yet the main reason why they do not have any confidence in what he's saying and they refuse to accept it is because, well, we may never get out of this war alive. And so they just do not believe it. And so this is a song about a lovesick man who is yearning to, to marry who he describes as the most beautiful girl he's ever seen. A girl who out of all of the men in the world has chosen him. And yet anybody who has Old Testament ears and a New Testament spirit immediately notices and picks up on the fact that, that wait a minute, this is also a description of the Christian life. And so we come to the book of Psalm this morning, Psalm chapter 8, and of course any, any series about music is incomplete without a message in Israel's music book of the Psalms. Psalm chapter 8, of course, is a psalm written as many of them were, and it's composed by King David. And what he says in Psalm 8, starting in verse 3, is when I look at your heavens, at the work of your fingers, and at the moon and at the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? And yet you have made him a little bit lower than the angels. And you have crowned him with glory and with honor. You have, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things in subjection underneath his feet. And so the good news is the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. And yet the icing on the top of the great news is that every single person who is a Christian, who has ever been a Christian, every single one of us who comprise his church this morning we can all say with absolute confidence and assurance to God that, that out of this great big world, you have chosen me, God. God foreknew, God chose Abram. As we see Abram standing there late one night and God says, Abram, I want you to look up into the sky right now. And he says, I want you to count all of the stars, if you can. Of course, he's not able to do that. 
God's going to let him get to maybe 90, maybe to 100 before he, he stumbles and he loses count of how many stars he's looking at up there. And yet it's really not stars Abram is looking at. He's not really stargazing. But rather what Abram is looking at are his future descendants. God says that as vast as the stars are in the starry host, so will your descendants be. As vast as the sand is on the seashore, that's going to be your, all of your descendants. God chose Abram for a very specific purpose. Equipped him with a very sacred responsibility and said, Abram, I choose you out of everybody. Yet God also chose Moses, didn't he, at the burning bush. As God says, Moses, out of everyone in your nation, I am choosing you to lead Israel out of slavery. God chose Moses with a very specific purpose, gave him a very sacred responsibility and said, Moses, I choose you. And so God chose individuals, but he also chose a nation, didn't he? Where God looks at all of these slaves and he calls them Israel, but but yet another name that they would very soon go by is God's elect, God's chosen, God's nation, and God's chosen people. These are um, beneficiaries of God's blessing. These were the people who were to live holy lives around all the other nations around them as a beacon to the world around them. God chose Israel with a very specific purpose gave Israel a very sacred responsibility and said, Israel, I choose you out of all of those other nations. And yet we might be hearing all of this and saying, cool story, but what does that have to do with us? Those guys who you mentioned, they were all a bunch of Jewish people who lived thousands of years ago in a place called Israel and Jerusalem that's not a description of us. And yet as we come to the book of Galatians for just a moment, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul says something that is world-changing. It is a watershed moment in Scripture. Whereas he's writing to the church at Galatia, he's writing them to remind them who Jesus is because they are very confused after false teachers have crept in and have confused them about who Jesus is. A lot of them are on the verge of returning back to Judaism and to the law of Moses. Galatians 3 and verse 7 says that, that know then that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. I just want to read that again for emphasis. Where Paul says, know then that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing, and again, notice how he uses that word foreseeing. That's another word for, for chosen and foreknew. God foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, and that's us, through faith. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, that in you shall all of the nations of the earth be, and then he says, blessed. So then it is those who are of faith who are blessed along with Abraham, who is the man of faith. And so what this means is, is no, we are not Jewish. 
No, we are not the people of Jerusalem. And yet what Paul is, is really saying here is, we actually are the children of Abraham, he's saying. And we find this all throughout Scripture, where what we hear Simon Peter saying is that you are a chosen race. He's speaking about the church when he says that. What the Apostle Paul says is that we are God's elect. And then he uses a very, very huge word in the Ephesian letter where he says that God has predestined us to adoption as the sons and as the daughters of God. What the Hebrew writer says about us, the church, is that we are described as the new and as the heavenly Jerusalem. God chose Abram and Moses and Israel, but, but just as much what this means is that God has also chosen us. God has chosen you and he's chosen me to be his elect people and his holy nation. He's given us a sacred responsibility to be the light of this world, the salt of this earth, and to love our neighbor as our own self. And isn't it an incredible thought that 4,000, 5,000 years ago, however long it was, as Abraham is looking up into the sky late that night, looking at stars, trying to count them, that him and God are actually speaking about us. As he looks up into the sky, he sees a star, but that's not a star. That's Marianne up there. And over there is Paul, Thomas. And way over there is Maisie, shining in the sky. It's interesting how in, in New Testament scripture, it says in, in a Philippian letter that, that we are shining as stars in the sky. And when Amanda and I had gotten married and we had been living for a short time in Ocala, Florida. We were at a church back then. And there was a man in that church whose name was um, a Paul Spicer. And he was a man um, in those days in his mid-90s, very old man. And, and yet he had the heart and the smile of a nine-year-old boy. Just the kind of guy who could walk into any room and instantaneously illuminate it, much like Walter Horsey does. And yet I'll never forget, though, how he had led a prayer one Sunday morning. And just before he prayed, you can tell that he was enchanted by a certain thought. And he shared it with everybody. Where he said, a world of seven billion people. And God cares about you and you and you. And God cares about me. I don't know. It was just one of those comments that, that I will remember for the rest of my life. Seven billion people in the world and God cares about me and God cares about you. When I say that what it means that God has elected us, chosen us, I mean, it is, it is a huge question in the world. I mean, what does it mean that, that God has chosen us? What does it mean that God has elected us? I mean, what exactly does all of that mean? I mean, does that mean that we are pawns on a cosmic chessboard who are either going to heaven or we're going to hell no matter how we live or what we choose to believe? As it says that we are, are the elect of God, does that mean that salvation is something that we have to campaign for? Or does that mean that God is casting a ballot 
in order only of those who have earned his vote of salvation. As it says, God has chosen us, does this mean that God is choosing who he's going to save as a person chooses who's going to be on a basketball team at the Y? Or I'm going to take him and him and him and, well, I don't want, want him over there. And I definitely don't want that guy over there. He's, you know, he's going to hog the ball. Well, there is a school of thought that has done a lot of harm to many people in the religious world. It's called irresistible grace. And it comes from Calvinism. And, and in a nutshell, what it means is that, that all the people who are lucky enough to receive God's love and salvation, they really did not choose God as much as God chose them. In other words, it is not something that they really chose to do they themselves, but God really made them love and believe in him. And it teaches the exact opposite as well, that, that all of the people who are not in the church, well, no matter what, they are going to hell no matter what. And yet there are red flags going up all over the place, aren't there? Because God has given every single one of us free choice. There's nobody who deserves salvation from Jesus. There's nobody who just accidentally, unknowingly stumbles into heaven without any kind of choice. Scripture says that God is desiring that, that all people should be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. God is desiring everybody to be saved. And yet he's given us all a choice, though. Or as it says in Romans chapter 1, how the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everybody who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And so, yes, Israel had been God's chosen people and God's chosen nation. And yet that does not mean that everybody else from all these other nations are helplessly shut out of God's family and God's kingdom. Well, as Peter sees us Gentiles coming into the kingdom in droves, he says, now I understand that, that God is not a God to show partiality, but rather the man from every nation who fears God and does what is right is acceptable to God, he says. And I think one of the greatest explanations of what this means to be chosen of God is by a minister whose name is Brian Zahn. And what he says about this is that if, if God wanted to, God could have made every single person love and believe in him. If he wanted to, you're going to believe in me. Wham. Well, I believe in God now. You're going to love me. Wham. Wow. I do love you, O masterful God. And yet, if that had been true, though, that would be a rich, lonely old man who is dancing with a mannequin. And there's just something very sad about that image, about an old, wealthy man who is dancing with a mannequin, because that is the only way that he can get anybody to love him of their own accord. I think the simplest way that I can say what it means that we are God's chosen people is this. Is that God foresaw, God foreknew that he would have a spiritual nation one day. 
knowing that you and I and, and all the people who comprise it would one day choose to follow him and to worship him as, as our living God. God has chosen us, yes, but God desires to be desired by us. And yet that is not even what the largest question of our text is in Psalm 8, though. Really, the, the largest question of this text is in verse 4, where first he says that as I look at your heavens, at the work of your fingers, and as I'm looking at the moon and at the stars which you have set in place, then he asks in verse 4, what is man? What is man that you are mindful of him? And what is the son of man that you care for him? In other words, what David is saying is, who am I that God should be concerned about me? It's a question Moses asked at the burning bush. God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? I mean, you're God. You don't need our help with anything. So what do you need me for? It's a question I have pondered so many years. I mean, what is so special about us to God? Why does God move heaven and earth so that he can help us and to bless us? So that he can provide for us and to rescue us and to guide us and to comfort us? Why would he entrust such a beautiful world to a humanity who is so clearly not to be trusted with? God has given us a masterpiece, and so how do we honor God with that? Well, we consume the world, and we fill it with pollution. We say, well, you just dropped a bomb on us, and so we're going to drop two nuclear bombs on your cities. And as it comes to us human beings, and, and us as God's church, and me as an individual Christian, it reminds me so much of a billionaire who has a son, and they're living in a penthouse in New York City, in a $20 million penthouse overlooking Central Park. Well, one day his son says that I am engaged, and I'm going to bring her home. You're going to meet her today. Well, in the father's mind, he's expecting this, this, this very rich girl who comes from, from wealth, a billionaire, her own self. And yet, who his son actually brings home and says, this is my fiance, I'd like you to meet her, is this morbidly obese girl who comes from a trailer park in Arkansas. And she's also a burn victim, where almost her whole entire face has been blackened by fire, by the scars of her operation. And... And the guy's father just says, son, can I have a word with you in the kitchen? <laughs> and he says, what do you see in her? I mean, she is clearly not in your league. I mean, she's not even in, in your stratosphere. What do you see in her for you to want to marry her? And in the same way, I have asked so many times, why does God go to so much trouble for us? I mean, why even bother with people like us? What does God, I mean, what could he possibly see in us? And God's reply to that every single time has been, what I see is the bride of Christ. And as the song says, she is the most beautiful bride that I have ever seen. 
She is absolutely gorgeous and she's beautiful. As God calls Israel, they are just this tiny, obscure nation of a bunch of nobody slaves who, who no one other than, than Egypt has ever heard of. God looks at these exact same people and says, that is my treasured nation and my holy people. And as Jesus comes into our world, Jesus stepped into our world of a bunch of nobodies and losers and worms and whores and guilty sinners just like me. And he said to us that the world may not care anything about you, whether you, you're going to live or you're going to die, but I care about you. They may not love you, but I love you so much, I'm going to say it with my own blood. Over and over again, what Jesus is saying all throughout the Gospels, as well as those six hours on the cross, is I love you. I choose you. And as the Hebrew writer alludes to Psalm 8 in Hebrews chapter 2, what he says is, is because Jesus experienced everything that we could ever experience in this world, all of the struggles and, and the darkness, it says as a result of that, he is not ashamed to call you and me brother and sister. And it just seems too good to be true, doesn't it? How the creator of the universe cares about Joe the plumber, about Otis the taxi cab driver, about Amy the barista, about Herman a proctologist. And he wants to hear our prayers. He wants to hear our prayers about our doctor's appointments, about our math exams, about our, our pet dog and our pet horse. God is never too busy not to care about us. But rather, he is the God of whom it is said, cast all of your anxiety upon Jesus because he cares about you. He cares about you. What David says in verse 5 is that you have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and with honor. I mean, as... As small and as insignificant as you and I are, apart from God, what this means is that because of Jesus, we are just a few notches lower than the angels. That's a powerful statement there. And it's very true, too, though, by the way. And that's because you and I, even though we, we are very small, even though we are really nothing but dust and tennis shoes and jeans, we bear the image of the divine. We have been emblazoned with the Spirit of God to exude love in a world of hatred, joy in a world of cynical despair, peace in the midst of war. I don't know if you've ever gone to any of the natural wonders of the world. The Grand Canyon at sunrise, Guanabara Bay in Rio de Janeiro, Victoria Falls, there is a 5,000-foot waterfall. Or if you go to Nepal and stand at the foot of Mount Everest and you just look up, all of these natural wonders of the world, if you actually go to them, it is so utterly, exquisitely breathtaking that it literally knocks all of the wind out of you. And then God made this. 
God brought this into order and into creation. God brought this all into existence. Yes, we are small. Yes, we are very insignificant apart from God, but, and yet the God who created the sun and the moon and the Grand Canyon sees you and me as the true wonders of his world, of his intimate creation. So, as the song says, though, and when I tell them, and I'm certainly going to say to them, it says, I mean, it's such an apt description of the Christian faith that, I mean, it's not even a question of whether or not I'm going to tell people. I'm going to tell people. What the Apostle Paul says is that I believe, and so therefore I spoke. Meaning that if we are not showing other people Jesus, then we simply do not really believe in him. The loudest way that we, we um, speak about Jesus and, and tell them is by showing them what Jesus' love looks like. And when we do that, no, it's, it's not a matter of saying God is the loveliest girl we've ever seen. We don't speak about his lips or his eyes or his cheeks or his hair. And yet when we do tell them about Jesus, we are saying, we are speaking about his grace and his mercy and his love. How in this great big world, he has chosen all of those who will trust and glory in him. And yet the tragedy of this song, though, is found in the words, they didn't believe me. No, they did not believe me. No, they'll, they'll never, ever, ever believe me. No, they will never, ever believe me. That in this great big world, God has chosen me. I mean, we tell people how wonderful Jesus is. They can see the transformation evidences in us. They are witnessing that difference he's making in our lives, and they know that there's no other explanation for it, but they change the subject. They distract themselves, and they just look the other way and, and ignore what is going on there. Well, in one place, Jesus says that even if a person were to raise from the dead, there are people who would not accept it or believe it. And sure enough, Jesus, well, he had proven that when he raised from the dead and hundreds of millions of people all these years later will not believe it. No, they would not believe it. And I mean, what sadness. How most people who we show Jesus to are never going to believe. They're just never going to believe it. And yet for the very few who do on this very narrow gate, what peace, what relief, what, what happiness and joy that inflicts. So I just want to leave us here this morning with these words, the words of our brother in Ocala, Florida, Paul Spicer. I just want to impress this on our minds that in a world of 7 billion people, God cares for me. I mean, if we went through every hour of our lives repeating that to ourselves constantly, I mean, those are words that return to me when my heart is drowning in anxiety in the middle of the afternoon and I just start breaking down and I don't even know why I'm crying. 
yet I just make that my one and only thought. A world of seven billion people and God cares about me. God is blessing me. And not very long after that, I can feel all of the venom and the poison of that anxiety draining out of my soul. No, God is not too occupied, too good, or too busy in order to be bothered by our prayers or our cries. But rather, every last one of us can say with assurance, I am God's chosen, beloved son. I am God's elect, holy daughter. And from this great big world, God has chosen me. You're going to believe in me. Wham! Well, I believe in God now. <laughs> <laughs>